Welcome into the Otson Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel on the show as always. And it's Wednesday, hump day, but more importantly, it is the mailbag day where we dip into Eric Scopel's mailbag and pull out all the questions that you, the Duck fan, have submitted. We got a good batch of them here, six questions, some focus along, I think, the football program for the most part, considering the season just ended and probably ended in a way that many people were not happy with from an Oregon <laughs> perspective. Before we dive into these questions and break everything down for you, I want to remind you guys, there's two ways that you can help support the podcast. The, the, the easiest, the, the one way that has the least amount of money required because it requires zero dollars. Uh, go give us a review. Those help us, believe it or not. Give us a review on the platform that you listen to. Uh, the show on and 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 let us know. You know give us some feedback. Secondly, if you want to, sh- if you really want to support the show in a big way, in the most impactful way, uh, go subscribe to DuckTerritory.com. One dollar for your first month, nine ninety five thereafter. That Matt, you did note that the podcast questions here for the mailbag are not the most upbeat, <laughs> and I hadn't really thought about it from this lens of. Of course, the questions are going to kind of represent the fan base's perspective entering the offseason. I remember last year, the questions that we had in our first mailbag were a little different, talking about the upside of possibly competing for championships the next year. Um, This is kind of a a less enthusiastic, less optimistic group of questions, but um, I think some fun stuff here, too, in terms of kind of what next year could hold. And again, as we said on our wrap-up show last week, um, or over the weekend following the end of the 2020 calendar year. We're going to keep doing these. Um, I, I love seeing a new variety of names of, of people asking questions. So um, I appreciate your guys' involvement in our podcast. I think it's been really fun seeing not only the growth, like we said earlier, from a just a pure on downloads perspective, but also just, um, I, I guess, from a involvement in the podcast. So keep on asking questions. We'll do these. I usually put them up on Twitter Monday and Tuesday. We record sometime on Tuesday, and the podcasts go up Wednesday. So if you have odds and audible questions, use the hashtag or um, answer the prompt I use on Twitter. First one today from Andrew. From sorry, from Adrian, and this is a bunch of numbers here: two, three, six, three, one, eight, seven, four. No idea what the significance of that might be. Probably not. Hopefully not a social security number. Otherwise, Adrian's <laughs> giving us a lot of information. Um, your life is now compromised, Andrew. Adrian, really sorry about that. Sorry about that. Maybe use a different group of numbers um, if that's the case, uh, especially if it's going to be asking a question on a podcast that a, a, a decent number of people listen to. First, his question is, Coach Cristobal likes to stick, stick with certain players, even if they're not the most talented. Do you think this can come back to bite Oregon if players with great p- potential decide to leave due to lack of involvement? What worries me is that this could cut the prime years of better players. I think I want to... I'm curious, I, like, I, I wish Adrian would have given us an example. Of what yeah, I was going to say, I, I kind of want to push back on the just the general premise here about sticking with players that are less talented. Um, are we talking about... Like, like the, the two examples that would come to mind here from this year in terms of... Camden Lewis, Henry Cattleman is the first one in my mind. But like, but I also go like one of them was a recruited, highly regarded scholarship place yes. kicker, 
and the other was a walk-on who really had no experience with the sport. So, like, you can say, you know, a difference in talent there. Maybe, like, maybe Cabinet in practice looked better, but, like, there was also a lack of game reps. You could point to Tyler Shuck versus Anthony Brown. Well, Tyler Shuck was a higher-rated recruit, and Tyler Shuck had more experience in the program. So, like, I don't know if I agree with that, and that I kind of have a hard time thinking of other instances, like, of where that would be the case. So... Um, I, I do want to push back on that in terms of like sticking with the with less talented players over the more ta- you know what I mean. Like I don't know if that's true. What I will say is I do think he seems to favor experience continuity over a lack of experience or lack of continuity, and I think that's a fair way of addressing this. I think more talented is kind of a misnomer. Um, so, so I do want to like at least acknowledge that, but I think it's a decent point in terms of so, and something we have acknowledged previously on podcasts of in both those instances, I think maybe there was a little bit too much time that elapsed in making those decisions and, 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 and that could have ad- adversely impacted those decisions. Like I think Camden Lewis was not good last year and Camden Lewis was not good the first two games of this year, and yet they stuck with him against UCLA. Obviously, they still won that game, but we all remember his last field goal attempt of the season and likely of his career was a kick that was, gosh, uh, 20 yards short and to the left. I mean, it wasn't even close. Cattleman comes in and has looked much better. The Tyler Shuck anthony Brown thing, like, it's hard to really assess who was a better quarterback based upon the reps and I know there's going to be listeners who disagree with that, but like it's a small sample size. And we also mm-hmm. saw Anthony Brown miss a wide open Devin Williams. And we saw Anthony Brown fumble, it, fumble it in a cr- crucial situation. Um, so like, I, I do want to just acknowledge those things. Now to this, to the other part of this question here, um, will it come back to bite Oregon if players with great potential decide to leave? Well, we haven't seen an instance of this yet. Have we? Um, none of the, I mean, the two instances we're mentioning there, I, like the other thing is like, what was who was the last really big time player, four or five star recruit to enroll at Oregon to be in the program for at least a year or so, and then to jump ship because they weren't getting playing time? I, I don't even know if there's a list to look at. Um, now, would that worry me if this was a trend? Like, say for example, this is also completely hypothetical and completely, this has not taken place. But like, a Justin Flo enters the program. And he's way better than Isaac Slade Matoti. This is a hypothetical, which I don't agree with. And maybe this is kind of an example Adrian or listeners consider. And Flo sits and rides the pine for a year and decides to transfer to go back to USC or UCLA because he's a highly rated recruit. And those schools obviously want him as any school in the country would. And he leaves. Like that would be a, a frustrating and disconcerting trend if that was the case. But that's not what I'm seeing at Oregon. No. Um, what I've seen is the players that have left the program have been players that haven't gotten playing time, but haven't exactly like, like here's a way to look at it. Who, who, where, where are these players going? I can't think of a guy that's left Oregon that you're like, God damn, that would, that would be awesome if he was on Oregon's team right now. Cause he's just destroying fools at school blank. Like, well, I was just thinking like, you look at it this way. Usually players transfer up or down a level. I can't think of a player or, or to the same level. I can't think of a player who's really transferred up or up or evenly. Right. Like they all pretty yeah. much have gone down a level. Yeah, like there, there isn't a name out there where I think I'm sitting here thinking like, this dude, why did he not play at Oregon? Because he is killing it at that other school and would help Oregon right now significantly. 
Now, there have certainly been decommitments. Sure. Um, or, or guys that Oregon maybe just flat out couldn't get on their roster that you say that. Like Talanoa Hafunga is, is one of them. I mean, Corvallis, uh, I, and I 100% believe that if Cristobal had been the head coach hired instead of Willie Taggart and, you know, everything was progressing the way it was, they, they get Talanoa Hafunga. Um, to, to be on this football team, if he's a 2018 recruit rather than a 20 or a 2019 recruit rather than a 2018 recruit, yeah, exactly. Like if he was 2019 uh, and Crystal Ball was the head coach, I, I think Talanoa Hafunga is playing for the Oregon Ducks right now. But like, I can't think of a of a time where a guy has left the program and has gone on to excel at another at a, at a high level under this current regime. Like, there just really isn't one. Yeah, and, and so, like, I guess, Adrian, what we'll say is, if this becomes a trend, it'll be worrisome. But, but right it's not now, a trend right it's, now. It's not right now. And, and not only is it not a trend, I think you're there's kind of lacking evidence to it. And I understand the original point regarding – I do think Cristobal is a very – I think he seems to be a pretty loyal person. And I think in some instances he has tried to appease and, and please too many people. And sometimes that has hurt – some things, but I don't think it's been because of the exact scenarios you've laid out there. Um, but I think, I think fair points in terms of like, if this were a thing that was taking place, which I don't, we don't think it is like, yeah, that'd be really concerning. And you would be worried about Oregon signs, these elite recruiting classes and these guys all take off and suddenly Oregon's left with nothing. There's an Oregon. I would be stunned if there's going to be a talent, you know, a lack of talent on the, on the roster, as long as Mario Cristobal, as at Oregon, if anything, there's going to be so much talent. And this is a, um, I don't want to go too far down a tangent here before we jump onto the second question, but there's, this was a point that was brought up on the duck territory message board, which again, if you are not a member of DuckTerritory.com, we've got a couple of different op- opportunities to keep it pretty inexpensive and you can take part in some of these discussions, but somebody brought up like, well, what's going on with Lance Wilhoyt, who was a four-star recruit receiver, receiver recruit a couple of years ago and was kind of bemoaning how disappointing it was that he wasn't going to cut it. But I just, my, or he hadn't cut it yet. He hadn't really done anything. And my response was, well, Devin Williams and Micah Pittman were even better recruits that are the same age. And, and they're playing ahead of him. And, and they're playing and, ahead of and him. And when they're playing, they're, they're performing yeah. uh, at, at a very high level here. Um, like I, I would also like to flip this, to close this discussion real quick. I, sure. I would flip this and say like, you went to, you know, you threw out the comment of, you know, maybe pleasing as many people as possible. And, and I don't want to use, you know, that, that that's, I'm not accusing, 100% accusing Oregon of doing that. But like, I, I do think they're like the running back position. Okay. Travis Dye, CJ Verdell, and Cyrus A.B. Lakio, uh, that shouldn't be a triple headed tandem in 2021. Like, you need you need to find a bell cow and you need to that guy needs to get the carries because we're not seeing the production at that position this year that you need from the three guys so you need to you need to stick with one or two don't rotate three um and, and if you're going to rotate three I, I think we need to see Sean Dollars find his way into this mix as well hundred percent on Sean Dollars. hundred percent. I just did a breakout 
potential breakout stars on offense and defense. You can go check that out. I posted that Tuesday morning, 10 players. I won't give away anyone else because I want you to read the story, but Sean was there and, and very prominent. It was probably the first name, not probably was the first name I, I thought of when I, when I kind of came up with the conception of the, the story and the exercise, which I do every year. But when I thought of, Hey, I'm going to do the, the, the breakout guys, Sean was right at the top of my list. And I know it's small sample size, but really impressed with what we saw from him in the Pac-12 championship game. And, Another one that's a little puzzling from the Fiesta Bowl was why we didn't see more of him. I know he was out there a couple of times, but no touches. Seems like a guy you want to get involved in. Oregon had like a huge disparity in number of plays ran. They ran like half as many plays, but certainly somebody I, I think needs to be incorporated in the offense a little bit more. Not a little bit more, a lot more. I think he should be in contention and, and a possible lead running back. And if he's not the top guy, he should be second or so in, in touches as a running back. And if he's lower than that, that either means worked what, what we're discussing here earlier with the kind of the playing some guys who maybe are undeserving, quote unquote, in some eyes, that's probably kind of an unfair way of presenting it, but playing other players ahead of him is taking place or some other players like a young guy, like a Trey Benson is really for real. And I know Trey had some injuries, someone else to be kind of aware of that running back. Oregon has some running back talent and it's going to be interesting to see in 2021, how that plays out. I think that's one of the bigger questions and, and storylines to follow. All right, next one from at Dmore underscore 44. Along with others, I blame Marcus Arroyo for uninspired play calling. Now a year after a year of Joe Moorhead, still fairly conservative, I'm starting to think Mario Cristobal is putting a tight leash on his offensive coordinators. Does Moorhead have autonomy? I know a head coach has a vision, but at a certain point he needs to trust his offensive coordinator. That's an interesting one. Um necessarily agree that that the offense was super conservative this year i think like, but, I, I, but here's what I, here's what i will say this is why i kind of pause there matt and then i'll toss it to you for your perspective i do think it seems like when it gets down to third and one or fourth and one scenarios sure. it seems like things tighten up and the reason i and, and it almost okay I, like I would agree with that i would 100 percent agree with that and, and, and didn't it seem like it tightened up more as the season went on too like, yeah, I, and that I, also goes with the fact that Tyler Shuck and his his mm-hmm. confidence and his his play just nosedived and right I around just, that same time. Like they were protecting Tyler Shuck because he he wasn't making the same plays and wasn't playing with the same confidence that he was playing the first three or four weeks of the year. It it, it I just I just think back to those first couple of games and the and how often and maybe defenses started just picking up on how to defend it, but how often we saw that. Um, RPO play where you had DJ Johnson out of the backfield and you just dumped it to him. And we know yeah. we saw it in the Pac-12 championship with Anthony Brown once, but like it seemed like they had all these kind of money plays that you just would pull out when you needed two to three yards. And it seemed like at the end of the season, and obviously especially at times, well, against Cal quite frequently, um, at times against USC, and obviously notably a few times in the uh, Fiesta Bowl, it went back to run plays up the middle that were just predictable and stuffed. And that I think is something I can, I don't agree with uninspired play calling because I think for the most part, like Moorhead is a really good offensive coordinator. And I loved a lot of the things we saw this season. I want to say that, but I do think there were times where it did feel like it reverted back to some of that predictability on short yardage situations. How many times this season? I mean, how many times this season did we see a third and one, third and two, fourth and one, fourth and two, Oregon goes for it, and it's a pistol dive? 
Like, yeah, I don't have, yeah. With uh, Cyrus uh, Avilakio in our running back. like Or Travis Dye. Yeah, like we knew, everyone knew, like if that's what we're talking about and, and being predictable and being conservative, then I 100% agree. Like that needs to stop. There needs to, you know, you need to have the dive out of the pistol on third and one with Cyrus Lubikio, but then Telleshuk do a play action rollout, they, you know, make a bootleg or something. Um, you know, that needs to be different. Uh, in those situations, you knew who was getting the ball and you were putting yourself, because of the pistol is so far back, where the running back sits, you're putting yourself at such a disadvantage, you know, to, to get that yardage situation. So I think this is a larger point that's interesting, though, that, that Demore asks, which is, does Moore have, have autonomy? Um, or does Mario Cristobal have too tight of a leash? And we don't know who's making all these calls, right? Like, we can't tell you. Um, I... I, I mean, I, I can't say here with the, any level of confidence that Mario Cristobal is intervening and Joe Moorhead wants to play, you know, wants to run X, Y, and Z. And Cristobal says, no, we're running, we're running the dive or we're, we're running a counter play here rather than whatever the coordinator says. I, I don't know that to be true. I have no evidence to put, to promote that, but I, I do, I do agree somewhat with the premise of like, it does seem like there have been instances where throughout the course of a game, Moorhead is doing some really innovative, fun things that are creating some one-on-one matchups. You're having some success. And yet when it does get to these really key situations, it seems like it does go back to some of the stuff, which is a little less exciting, a little bit less fun, a little bit more predictable. And those plays often don't work in key situations. And I, I can say that. And I guess that would be if like, if you have like a wish list for 2021, it would be to see a little bit less of that, especially when the going gets tough. Um, especially on those key downs, because I do think that go watch those first couple of drives against Iowa state. They were completely on, they were rolling. I mean, I think at one point it was like 13 out of 22, two plays had been for first downs, you know, in the first half, they averaged like nine yards per play. Um, I didn't see an uninspired play calling at all. And I didn't see a lack of execution with aside from a couple of plays, but as the game wears on, it does seem like in, it, in the plays become a little bit more important. It, it, it does seem like something shifts there a little bit. So I think that's at least a notable observation. I, I, I can't, we, I don't think either of us can point to who's making those decisions or if that's Cristobal needing to kind of loosen some of the restraint on his coordinators or not, but I think it's at least notable. All right. Third one from take it cheesy, which of the 2021 recruiting class has the potential to make it to be an immediate impact player. And in recent memory, who was the best true freshman to play? Um, let's do the first one, and we'll each kind of have an answer. Well, here. I can answer the second part right away. Well, there's two. There's two players in the second one that are just so obvious that it's like, what else are you going to do here? And Penny Sewell and Kayvon Thibodeau. Yeah, I mean that's that's like a layup right there. Um, that that's that's pretty easy. Um, I mean, I don't think you can really, in recent memory, like the last two of the last three years, you've got two, and, and Noah Sewell you can throw in there as well. I mean, Oregon has had. I mean, you could also throw Justin Herbert in there four years ago when he yeah. was a true freshman. So, like, yeah, I mean, so I guess there, there are who is the best. I mean, if we want to pick one player, maybe that gets somewhat tough. But like Justin Herbert, I think Justin Herbert made the biggest impacts on the team that year. And like, if not for Justin Herbert on that team, imagine just how little, how much pessimism there would have been around the program entering. Um, 2017 it would have been like gosh there's really nothing to look forward to I, mean, I, I imagine if they hadn't played Justin Herbert it would have been Dakota Prukop that whole season of like 
boy, it would have been a totally different outlook. And, and I think you can criticize Mark Helfrich for a lot of things, but you have to at least give him credit for at least he gave Justin Herbert an opportunity in the second half of that season to go out there, to make those plays, to finish the year. I know they didn't win a lot of games, but they did beat Utah. They did beat Arizona State, but at least to go out and go, hey, we know we've got a good quarterback here. Um, obviously, Oregon's had a ton of talented young players, so I think I'd go Herbert as well. Obviously, uh, you have Sewell and Thibodeau, who are both defensive players of the year um, in terms of freshmen uh, the last two years. Which member of the 2021 class has the biggest, or, you know, has the most immediate impact here, Matt? Um, I know you. I know who your pick is because you kind of talked about it on the podcast. You've talked about it on Slack, and I'll just kind of throw this up to you before I answer. But you think it's Kingsley Sumatia, don't you? Yeah, I think he starts day one for Oregon um, as one of the tackles. I I, I just. I think that, you know, the, the guys that Oregon has currently right now at that tackle spot, um, some of them are better suited to play guard. Some of them are better suited to play right tackle. I think Kingsley's probably going to be in a position where he could walk in and be that left tackle for Oregon. If not the left, I think he's for sure going to start at the right. And then, like, if I had to pick someone else out of that group, I probably would would pick Troy Franklin or Dante Thornton, one of those two receivers, um, forcing their way into the depth chart and 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 really having a big impact for Oregon as well. Yeah, I know. For me, I uh, I did, again, I I don't want to give all my breakout players because it's on the site, but I had two of them from this list, and you've already said one of them, so I'll just say the other, and I think it's Dante Thornton, wide receiver. Um, some of this is going to be dependent upon what Johnny Johnson and Jalen Red do. And by the way, we're recording this podcast Tuesday afternoon. Neither of them had made any sort of a formal announcement. It's possible that in the next, by the time you're listening to this, those players will have decided one way or the other. And this will be a, a moot point. But so, some of the discussion at receiver has to be framed around what those two do. Because if those two return, they're both starting or at the very least major contributors. But if, both, if one or both those players don't come back, how exciting is the concept of having Devin Williams at one outside receiver, Dante Thornton or a Troy Franklin at the other, and then Micah Pittman in the slot? I mean, that's as a talented a receiving core as Oregon's ever had, period. I know there's some youth there, a lot of youth there. We're talking about true freshmen and, and guys who, I mean, Micah Pittman's been around for a while, but due to injuries and contact tracing and whatnot this year, he's only played about 10 career games. But uh, and, and Devin Williams has played about the same as less than that at Oregon. Um, obviously, this year he played six. But like, I, I just look at that and think Dante Thornton and Devin Williams on the outside opposite of each other. That's two six foot five guys who can run and who can make plays with the ball in the air and who, when the ball gets in their hands, can do some stuff. It's like that's that right there is is Oregon has very rarely had one of those guys on their roster. If they can have two of those guys those like kind of Julio Jones type of body types. And, and now Julio Jones, like that was the archetype seven years ago. And now the NFL's just, everybody's got that kind of player on their team and every multiple teams in college have like LSU's roster, <laughs> Clemson's roster, Ohio state's roster. It just it feels like they have, are full of those guys. Oregon hasn't had too many of those guys. I just look at him and think that could be potentially a difference maker from right off the bat. Um, so that would be, that would be my pick along with, with Kingsley. And I think defensively I'm with you, Matt, like it, it's maybe there are kind of fewer, like, you know, easy layup picks. Um, 
but I, I look at maybe a Jalen Davies just in terms of the cornerback rotation needing some some help with with a couple guys leaving this year, um, being a really talented guy who might come in and, and make an impact. So, um, and really offensively, I know we've listed a couple of guys. There's a lot more. I mean, you look at the tight oh, yeah. end, the tight end spot, and I go, yep. well, Country Cantmore is, is announced he's not returning. Okay, that opens the door. Uh, what if we don't know? What, we don't know if Cam McCormick's gonna be able to play or not. I mean, like, I almost put him at like he's at this point. Like, I'm just I'm not concerning myself with. I, and and I, this isn't meant to be disrespectful to Hunt or to Cam, because I really feel for him. But it's three straight seasons now he's not been able to play, and yeah. at, at this point, it's like. I, I'm just kind of – he's not – I know he's technically a possibility to play, but I'm just kind of putting him – he's not – in my mind, I'm not even including him. He's a luxury if it works out. Like, that's how I look at it with him. But, like, between DJ Johnson, Spencer Webb, I don't even know what to make of Patrick Herbert at all. I have no idea what to make of him. I expected he was going to be an impact guy. Maybe he won't be. Um, and maybe I'm writing him off too quickly. But, like, I think between DJ Johnson, Spencer Webb, and then the two freshmen in Maliki Matavajo and Terrence Ferguson – that's a really exciting group, but I'm not going to be surprised at all if one of those true freshmen rises and, and plays a big role. Off, you know, from an offensive line perspective, probably only one of those guys has a chance to play quickly. But no, I'm not going to be surprised in the least bit if, if Jackson Light and Bram Walden are at least in consideration for reps. And then, of course, the elephant in the room staring at everybody is Ty Thompson. And we've talked about this. I, I, I'm not going to be as surprised, and we've said this before, if he's starting games at the back end of the season, I just feel, or even maybe earlier on than that, maybe by the third or fourth game, like if things don't go well with whoever ends up emerging as the starter to start the season, I just am, I'm very hesitant to, to say, I think he's going to be the starter day one is just where I'm at. But I think his name has to be mentioned in terms of guys with immediate impact. But I put, I put those guys we mentioned behind Dante Thornton or Troy Franklin at receiver and a King Lucio Matia. I think those three guys offensively are the ones to me that I think have the most direct path potentially to playing time. Um, and so I'm with Matt on Kingsley. And I think those two receivers are the others that I would, I would know offensively. All right. Three questions in, we've got three more to go. Um, some more football. We've got a lot, lot more to get to. I want, want to remind you guys real quick. Um, give us a like, uh, give us a review on the podcast. Those are always impactful, always helpful. Uh, good to get feedback on the show as always. And remind you guys, you can sign up to today to duckterritory.com for as low as $1 for your first month, $9.95 there after that. Get the inside news and don't be left out in the dark when the news hits and you're wondering, how did this happen? Why did this happen? What's to come? Uh, make sure you've you've got all those answers covered by subscribing to DuckTerritory.com. All right. First from at Drew Goley. If you had to pick two quarterbacks to transfer, who are you picking? I can't see all six sticking around. Hashtag Otson Audible is putting our feet to the fire a little bit here, Drew. Don't like uh, doing this, but let's do it. All right. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and the caveat obviously here is like, it might be like, I, well, I, I'll just say this, like, it's possible some of these guys move positions too. Yeah. Like, and like, and so like I could see somebody not playing quarterback, like Kale Millen. What if, what if he plays safety? And I know Kale. I was probably- just going to say, like, I, I think Kale is playing special teams. The last two games of the year is interesting. Um, and you're right. Maybe that opens the door for him. He's a very athletic dude. I mean, that yeah. we knew it, it was, can he get his body 
uh, developed to catch up to his athleticism. Um, maybe it's, can you get yourself ready to play on the defensive side of the football? Yeah. And if Robbie Ashford, obviously athletic enough. He was to pro maybe, in baseball. I was going to say, so there, there, there you go. There's two guys that are, there's our answer. Nobody transfers. Uh, Robbie Ashford goes play baseball. Cam Milton switches positions and nobody has to leave. No, I, those are, those are just like those kind of like contingency plans that could take place so that you don't have to have two players transfer. Um, and, and, and those would be the players, like if I'm just being honest here, and I know this is a little cutthroat, but that's kind of the reality. Those are the two players who I think have the least chance of really ever seeing the field, that quarterback, in any significant way um, of, of the guys that are returning and you throw in Ty Thompson. Um, those would be the two at the bottom of my list of like, okay, if you had to rank them one through six from who, and maybe this is the exercise we should, we should do rather than the transfer, is just like if you had to rank the players that could in theory be on next year's roster at quarterback, who are the most like? What's your order for who is most likely to play? Because if, if if I'm in and and play the most snaps in 2021, because if I'm doing that exercise, it's pretty easy for me to put Robbie Ashford and Kale Millen right at the bottom, and then after that. Well, I think right now, the way things are blowing, right now I might have Anthony Brown at the bottom because I don't. He might transfer. Like, true. True. Like if I'm Anthony Brown, I did what I did in the two games, and. I, I'm at Oregon and I don't know if I'm going to play or not. And I, it's, and I know that it took me six games to get on the field, especially in two games when the quarterback struggled. Like I might say, you know what? Like I love my time being here. I love the coaches, but I want to play. And Oregon's not going to guarantee anybody a starting job, especially at quarterback going into the off season. So like, that might be a case where it's, hey, I, I might leave because I, I like it here, but I want to play, mo- most importantly. And so I'm going to find a place where I know I can play. And if, and if nothing else, the last two games provided him some, some resume. Yeah. Say, hey, look, like maybe you guys doubted me. I showed up. I made some plays. I wasn't perfect, but look, I, I led the offense down the field for some touchdown drives. I scored two rushing touchdowns. I threw two touchdown passes. Of the two quarterbacks at the end of the season – I at least I I was involved in the most scoring plays. Like you, you can say that, um, and so I I agree. I mean I think those three guys probably are the ones that I would say are at the bottom. I, I think I just have a hard time seeing, and maybe things have gotten so bad with Tyler Shuck and and he feels so betrayed or whatever. I don't want to. I mean whatever descriptor you want to use by how things played down the stretch that he wants to leave, but like I just don't see him taking off quite yet. You know, he played seven games this season. He was good in four of them, maybe four and a half, if you want to count the first half against Cal, because the stats weren't bad in that first half. Um, and he goes, I want I, I, I would, I would, I would think he would stick around. And then the other two, like, I just don't see any, there's no logic, obviously, to Ty Thompson, who hasn't even, you know, he's basically just got on campus for him to transfer. And I think the same story for Jay Butterfield of like, what, what, what would lead him to transfer? You know, he's, had his redshirt freshman year, which technically counts as a not redshirt freshman. He's technically, a, he's technically the same age as Ty Thompson from an eligibility perspective. They're both two freshmen. He could redshirt this upcoming season. There's been a lot of positive discussion around him about him solidifying that, that position as a third quarterback on the, on the roster this season over the course of the last couple of weeks. Um, like I, I look at him and think like if we're putting v- Vegas odds in terms of who would be the starting quarterback next year, I think he has a third, maybe even like second. No, I probably have the third best odds 
over, you know, behind Tyler Shuck and, and Ty Thompson. Let's look at it this way. Let's, uh, let's eliminate Anthony Brown from the equation because we know he's gone, even if he comes back to Oregon next season, after next year. Okay. Um, and let's just look at Tyler Shuck, Jay Butterfield, Robbie Ashford, Kale Millen, and Ty Thompson. Okay. I think it's fair to say, more than likely, two of those four guys are no longer on the team in two years. I Tyler guess. Shuck may win the job in 2021, play well, play well in 2022, and go pro. We also could see a situation in which Tyler Shuck starts the year, Ty Thompson eventually takes over. Maybe Jay Butterfield comes forward and says, you know what, like, I want to play. I know I'm going to play, but I'm third on the depth chart. I've got a guy younger than me or equal to my age ahead of me. I'm going to go somewhere else and play. You also could see a Kale Millen who wants to play quarterback, maybe isn't open to a position change. And we're totally speculating on that position change. But I agree. agree. But we're sitting here saying Tyler Shuck wins the job. A Butterfield emerges as the clear air apparent to Tyler Shuck. And he's Millen sitting here looking, well, they've already got Shuck for a couple more years. Butterfield's a one year younger than he is. They've got another really good recruit coming in. Let's just say they're, you know, they've, they've landed their 2022 class quarterback commit. I'm just not going to play. Like, it, it, you know, there's too many younger guys or equal age guys ahead of me on the depth chart. I want to play quarterback if I'm going to play football. So I'm going to leave. Like, there are scenarios out there where I think it's more than likely it would be an utter shock if going into the 2023 season, all of those quarterbacks that have eligibility that far out on the team are still on the team. Like just history at Oregon history in college football shows that whoever, you know, when you have this many quarterbacks, you are almost guaranteed in two years out to, to have someone transfer. Well, and look at the, I mean, look at it this way, like Oregon's probably going to go out and sign a big time 2022 quarterback too, a yeah. big time 2023 quarterback too. the way things are going from a recruiting perspective, they could go out and find somebody who's a higher rated recruit than a Ty Thompson. And we're having yeah. a, and I, and this is, I mean, this is unfair to Ty because everybody, I mean, he's the highest rated recruit in program history from a quarterback perspective. He could get over recruited the way Oregon is handling itself. Uh, you could see some. You could see a big time transfer from another program. Oregon, Oregon's been in on all these top recruits the last couple of years, and you know DJU's obviously looks like the heir apparent at Clemson pretty clearly. But like they were the runner up there. You know they've been involved in a lot of these recruits out there. Like things change on a dime, at, at, you know, from a roster perspective. And you know, like I, I think you'd probably say of the the guys we're looking at entering twenty twenty one, everyone feels like Ty Thompson's probably the most likely to be the long-term starting quarterback based on a recruiting ranking, there's nothing that says Oregon's not going to go find somebody in 2022 who's better or add some sort of transfer somewhere down the line. Cause like if, if DJU picks up the phone and says, I'm tired of living in South Carolina, I want Oregon's taking him without a doubt. A hundred percent every single time. I, I, and they'd be silly not to, because you're talking about a quarterback recruit who, when he came out of the, this, you know, that look, you know, that, that part of the country, was being spoken about as like a one of the better quarterback prospects of the decade from that area. And, you know, you don't pass on these guys. So like this stuff can all change. Um, I think it's interesting to think about. And I think the reality we at least have to acknowledge here and, you know, whether or not we fully answered the two quarterbacks we think are going to transfer or not, 
is just the, the high, high likelihood that there is some turnover at this position. And I'm not going to be surprised at all if there's turnover at this position, even, you know, Anthony even before Brown, 2021. Exactly. Anthony Brown excluded because I think we'll know there sooner or later what he wants to do. But like among the other group, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear something even before the season starts in 2021 or during the season. I mean, this is this is just the reality of how it goes. It's unfortunate. You hate to see it. But um, the reality is you really can't carry six scholarship quarterbacks. It's hard to carry five. So um, certainly something to keep an, you know, to monitor and keep an eye on um, over the course of the next couple of months. We'll obviously have a lot of discussion about the quarterback position because it is and is going to continue to be all the way through the calendar year. The big t- hot button topic is what's going on at quarterback at Oregon. This is a program that has had so many blue chip elite quarterbacks that have gone on to the NFL. We obviously know what Justin Herbert is doing. There's probably not been a time in a very long time that I can think of where there has been this much uncertainty, this much questions about who's going to be the long-term guy than there is right now. There really isn't a clear candidate. I think that you go, that's the guy for sure. And that's, what's going to make this a fun off season to discuss. And it's going to make it fun when we get into spring and hopefully there's a spring spring game and hopefully we get to go watch it and see some of the practices in person. I don't know for a fact, but to be able to see kind of how this all evolves because Ty Thompson will be taking part in the spring as well. Next one from at BB bat 96. I was expecting to see a jump in production from Mace Funa this season and was disappointed in a lack of progress. Do you agree with this? Or do you agree? And was this due to scheme or something else? Um, I was critical of Mace's play early in the year. I didn't think he played very well. I think especially back to the Washington State game and the Stanford game, he missed a lot of plays in space, like a lot more than you'd like to see. I thought he was really good down the stretch of the season, personally. Um, six tackles against USC, six tackles against Iowa State, had a tackle for loss mixed in there. He had nine tackles and two for tackles for loss against UCLA. He didn't have a sack all season. So maybe you can point to that. He finished. This is a guy who finished the sixth in the team in tackles. Well, um, the thing the thing that stands out to, to most about the stats that he just ran off, Iowa State and, and USC, six tackles each. Those are two completely different offenses. One sure. is pure passing the football, spreading it out all over the place. And Iowa State was pure running ball control, you know, Stanford-esque type stuff where, yep. you know, it, it's like, okay, if, if he gets – 15 tackles over two games because they played two teams that just run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, run the ball every single time. Then that, yeah, it just makes sense. It's it's like the, the cornerback who's not very good, but gets a ton of tackles and he looks good because he gets <laughs> thrown the ball all the time. Like, yep. this yep. is, you know, these are two different offenses that are totally different. And Funa had really good games against both. Yeah, I, I think he got progressively better. I was critical of him early on in the season. I did not think he performed very well early. I really didn't. I, and I think if you went back and watched it, he just missed a lot of plays in space. I think he got progressively better. And he's not perfect, but this is also – he's a sophomore. Um, you know, He'll be a sophomore again next year, technically. I, I, I think he's a player that I, I – my concern level on him from a defensive perspective, like he's not in my top six to eight players I'm concerned about, probably, you know. And I haven't, I haven't actually sat down and made a list of like what my list of most concerned. Hey, maybe there's a content idea I just thought of on the fly for this for sometime later this month of what 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 starting positions on defense are of most concern going into 2021. But like he's not going to be very high on my list. I think he's a player with immense upside. He would like to see more production, and we talked about this um, a couple of days ago um, in terms of, and I think I like the term Matt used, a second bash brother for Kayvon Thibodeau off the edge from a. A, a, you know, a, a rushing the quarterback perspective, 
Mace Funa, no sacks, but also no quarterback hurries all season. You'd like to see a lot more production there. And, and of course, we saw a lot more as a freshman when he had four sacks and a couple of quarterback hurries to go with it. Eight and a half tackles for loss was, I think, second behind – I'm sorry, third behind uh, Kayvon and Troy Dye in that tackles for loss category. You'd like to see a little bit better production there um, in 2020. But I, 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 my concern there is not huge from like a scheme perspective. I do think early, you have to acknowledge the fact that early on in the season, we did see a decent amount of Adrian Jackson before he got hurt. Um, and that impacted the snap count. And I, and I think maybe that's in part why the production got better as the year wore on for Mace. But again, I'm not, I'm not hugely, you know, it's not a big concern for me. Let's also not gloss over the fact that this team did not go through a normal conditioning and strength training offseason. Totally. And I think there are certain players and certain positions that were greatly impacted by that. And I think individually and positionally, Mace Funa and the outside linebackers were impacted by that. Defensive line were impacted by that. I think I think we saw some guys that probably were closer to being out of shape than in shape at the start of the year. And I think that's probably a really good reason why this team towards the end of the season played really good football on the defensive side. Totally. And I, yeah, you talk about conditioning, you talk about fundamentals and that was something that I thought got progressively better. Something that Andy Avalos Discussing it, it seemed like the turning point was that Oregon State game. After that, I thought they played really well against Cal. I thought they played well, really well against USC. I know they gave up some points against Iowa State, but they were, man, were they playing with their back against the wall all night because of all the offensive and special teams mistakes. I, I think, and now we're kind of more general discussion here about the defense. Like, and it'll, some of this will depend upon what happens with Andy Avalos. Does he take the Boise State job? Does he remain at Oregon? Who's the coordinator? Who's leading this defense from a coaching perspective? I think there's remains a ton of reason for optimism about this group next year. And, and I really think like if you're weighing which group are you more concerned about offense or defense, I'm going to guess almost every fan is going to say, I'm a lot more worried about the offense and the defense, not because of Joe Moorhead, not because of the skill talent, but because of question marks at quarterback. And I think it's fair question marks on the offensive line. I think that group kind of considering that is a focal point of Amara Cristobal team. And that's his baby. I think there was some disappointment there from, from how they performed. And I don't think that's totally unfair. And I think he would, he would probably agree with that in terms of, and I know he, he's been up front in the past when his groups haven't performed up to, to maybe expectation. I, I think there were certainly games where the offensive line was good, but there were times where they really weren't up to what we'd expected. So um, I think that, I know we've, this is went from a Mace Funa discussion to a lot of different ways, but that's kind of the fun of the podcast. Um, I would just say defensively, like I, I think, there is reason to think this can be a really, really group good, really, really good group next year. And certainly if it's not wrapping things up, it's, it's not going to be because Mace Funa stinks. Cause I don't expect he's going to stink. In fact, I think he could take a step and become an all conference caliber guy in 2021. Final question. And it's a hoops question from at Matt March madness, 83 given roster sizes, seniors returning for another season in men's basketball is a huge impact and discussion has been limited. Please handicap each of the four seniors' odds for a return next season. Hashtag odds and audibles. Matt, this one is for you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would not be the expert here for this one. Let's run through these guys. Um, I guess let's start with a Eugene Amarui. What do you think the odds are he returns in 2021-22? 
I think they are moderately low. I don't think I, I do see a scenario play out where he could come back and it would be a case of, Hey, you just played an incredible senior year. You've put up some good numbers and we think that if you play one more season of college basketball and do this again, you could elevate yourself into that lottery pick type discussion. And at worst case, you're a mid second round draft pick. What I think probably happens is he doesn't come back because I think he's a senior. He's going to be a fifth year senior because he's redshirted one year already. Um, a guy that's putting up numbers like an all-conference potential player of the year candidate in the Pac-12. And the NBA is already kind of shifting towards small ball mentality. And I think if this was like seven years ago, without a doubt, you could argue a case, hey, come back one more year because you could really improve yourself. But, you know, we're seeing more and more six, 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 seven power forwards enter the NBA and be able to do a lot of good things. And he's, you know, having such a good, fantastic year. So I think it's moderately low. It's possible, but more than likely not. All right. Chris Duarte. Very little chance. Um, almost went pro last year to play international basketball. Uh, he has a baby. Uh, he has a family that he is going to need to provide for that wants to provide for. Um, I just, I just don't see him coming back regardless of what he could gain by coming back. LJ Figueroa. That one's probably could go either way. Personally, he'll probably have, he'll probably have some overseas interest to play professional basketball, but could he maybe play his way into that discussion where he's, a second round draft pick with another really strong year and a focal point of him of the offense. So I think he's kind of that moderate 50, 50 could go either way. If I had to sign side with one side, probably saying he doesn't come back. All right. But it's and like a very weak commitment to that. And the last one on scholarship, because you can't ignore Eddie, I, you know, Eddie Unescu or Luke Osborne are also on the roster here. Um, maybe those guys will come back. Uh, <laughs> Amari Hardy. I think he comes back. Unless he just looks at this and says, I did not like my time at Oregon. I, I want out. And I don't get that vibe from him. Um, certainly his numbers are not what he expected them to be. I mean, this is a guy that averaged like 13 points per game. But he's also having to play a completely different role than what he expected to play this year because Will Richardson's out with his injury. But knowing that, hey, you know what? Will Richardson probably is gone after this season. I mean, he's already, like ESPN's already saying without him playing a game yet this year and a third of the college basketball season being done, they've updated the 2022 NBA draft or 2021 NBA draft. And Richardson's a top, I think, 40 pick in that, in that projection. All right. So let's assume here for a second that Richardson's gone. And that LJ Figueroa is gone and Crystal Duarte is gone. Oregon's guard rotation next year brings back Aaron Estrada. They have Jalen Terry coming into the mix. And that's about it. I mean, they've 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 got Eric Williams who can play on the wing. 
there's ample playing time for Dana Altman to have Amari Hardy take over. And he could be that that go-to shooting guard for Oregon next season and not have to worry about running the point because Jalen Terry's one year older, has experience in the system, and they also have Aaron Estrada in the system who can help run the point guard duties as well. So I think I think there's a strong indication or a strong possibility that um, Amari Hardy comes back for next season. And that could, if that does happen, that could really make things spicy in the recruiting world. I was going to Amari Hardy's younger brother is the fourth best player in the country. And his name's Jaden Hardy. And he's a combo guard out of Henderson, Nevada. And Kentucky's the odd on favorite right now. They've got 50% of of the crystal ball predictions here, but Oregon's been sitting in the wings, you know, deep in the weeds, just sitting there. UCLA is an option. Arizona and Arizona state's an option. There's also the option for Hardy to go pro, but Oregon has a trump card that no other school can offer him. And that's saying, Hey, come play basketball with your brother because you can come here and you can play for the ducks and you can play with your brother and you both could, could duke it out on the court together, trying to get an after championship. And I, I think that would make things really interesting. If Amari Hardy chooses to come back for his senior year, which I think he, he could, because I, I mean, Eric, you've watched these games from afar, but I just can't look at this and think there's no one else on the roster that I look at and say he's, you know, unless Will Richardson comes back, that I sit here and say he's definitively going to be the starting shooting guard next year. Like, that's a perfect spot for Hardy to slide right in. No, I, I, I agree. And so I guess some of this, I mean, it, 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 he comes back and they bring his brother in and then his brother takes his playing time with you kind of. <laughs> Would be kind of comical. That would be, <laughs> would be comical because that. I mean, they do. They're not quite the same player, but they do sort of play similar positions. Um, and but that would be, that would be very intriguing if they get Jaden Hardy out of the deal, and and that sets up. Oregon's going to be, I think, really, really good next year. Anyway, they're going to be a much different team, Matt. A much different team in in twenty twenty one, twenty two. But if they add him to the mix with Nate Biddle, with a lot some of these players that are returning with. I, I mean, what, shoot, what happens with Enfali Dante now? Um, does he come back? I mean, that, 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 maybe that's a question for you too, Matt. Like, I know he's not a senior, and I know eligibility is not a question, but this is a guy that going into the season we had talked about as he's, he's probably going to take off afterwards. Well, what does he do? I mean, he only played, what, four games, five games before, you know, suffering a significant injury. Does he want to put his name in the draft with very, very little collegiate evidence? Or does he want to come back and, and try to improve things? Like, I, I feel like that could be, that could be a very interesting development if, if he decides to come back and then you would pair him with, with Nate Biddle in the front court. Um, what, what do you yeah, think? I don't, I don't know how Dante would, would get drafted. Um, I mean, it would have to be a case of him just coming forward and being like, look, I'm tired of school. I don't care if I have to go to the G League or if I have to go play overseas. I, I'm just done with school and, and, and the commitments that come with that. I want to start my professional career and I don't care where it's at unless he has that attitude and and hearing, you know, people talk about him, that's not what you hear. Um, So I, I think Dante comes back next season as a, as a redshirt sophomore. It's going to be a heck of a front court. And then their their front court next year is going to be absolutely insane. Like you have a redshirt sophomore and then follow Dante. You have a red, you have a 
we'll just call him a freshman, uh, Frank Capang. And then you've got Chandler Lawson, who will be a sophomore because he keeps a year of eligibility. And then you also add um, Biddle into the mix. And you've now got two five-star centers, a third that's you know a top 30 player in the country, almost a five-star himself. And then Chandler Lawson you know, will have you know, a ton of experience to his name and, and, and a lot of success to his name. So yeah, like Oregon's front court next year um, will – I mean, it, it, Oregon could literally start two seven-footers. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, regardless of what happens with this stuff, I think good discussion in terms of the senior uh, element of this. And Oregon men's basketball is not going away anytime soon under Dan Altman. That much is clear. And we, we had our basketball podcast. For, and for those listening, if you haven't caught that and you're, you want to get – maybe I think this is a perfect transition podcast we had on uh, yesterday just of like you might have been spending most of your attention on football. Football is now over basketball can become something to focus on and both the men and the women have ranked teams, really good teams, teams that are still very much in the race to win the conference. I think the men are, are the favorite right now. I think the women are probably second or third in terms of where they are in the pecking order. Um, basketball. And that's part of the reason I wanted to include this basketball is going to be very, very fun to follow this spring. And so I know there's a tendency to kind of tune out because it's not football season. Uh, pay attention to these hoops teams. I know you can't go watch them in person. I know, unfortunately, we should note this for those listening. The Oregon women's game on Friday was already going to be difficult to watch because it was on the Pac-12 network. They're playing Stanford, the number one team in the country. But at least that game was going to be played at 6 p.m. Well, they just moved it to 11.30 a.m. So not only do you have the two preeminent programs on the West Coast playing on a network that a lot of people don't have, now you've got it when it's like during the lunch hour out on the West, the lunch hour. What the was the, the reasoning country. for that? Uh, I, they moved the game from, and they have, by the way, they haven't, they played one home game all year. Stanford has it's, it's now it's being played at Santa Cruz. I'm guessing maybe I, I'd have to go in and look at this and I have, I, I'm guessing there was some sort of venue issue at Santa Cruz. Maybe they have a men's or a women's basketball game that night that was going to conflict with it. Um, and this was the only arena they could find on short notice, but it, it's just ridiculous that you have. A, that these teams are playing on Pac-12 networks, which, again, is a network that I know a lot of people don't have. And for those that do have it, it's not an issue. But then again, like, this is a, this is a game that it has two uh, fan bases that are really into the sport, that like, really support it. And you play at 1130, which is, like, for anybody who's not – I mean, and I know a lot of us are working from home these days. But, like, it just makes it difficult to watch this game, which, again, like, the last three Pac-12 conference tournaments have come down to these two, these two teams playing for it. So it's just, it's just wacky. Silly on their part, I think, but here we are. It's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for submitting the sh- your questions to the show. And until we talk to you here on Friday, you've been listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks.